Library. Mendocino Theatre Company's radio reading series continues with Lewis Beach's Forgotten Gem, The Clod, written in 1914 and heard right here on KZYX Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Willett Center for the Arts is pleased to present two views, paintings by Laura Corbin and J.J. Crashbang, and an installation, The Jewel is the Heart of the Lotus, by Jean Jesse, Friday through Sunday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Willits. The Noyo Center for Marine Science is having a scavenger hunt, fundraiser, questions and activities with a focus on whales from March 6th to the 21st. There are two new exhibits at Walala Arts Center, Random and Reason, How We Make Art, Thought, Emotion, Perception, Three Artists' Creative Process, also Animalia Musicale, a chorus of critters, opening on Saturday 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please let us know about your event or public service announcement by submitting it to our online calendar at kzyx.org. And this is KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We're also streaming live at KZYX.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Right now, we're broadcasting live from the Carnegie Library Studio in Willits, California, and up next, we have the Farm and Garden Show. Support for KZYX comes from our members and IV Accounting and Payroll Services in Willits specializing in bookkeeping and payroll services for local agriculture businesses and more, serving all of Mendocino County. More information at ivyaccounting.com or 489-5486. And I have a few announcements to add to the community calendar that we just heard. The first one is um, an exciting announcement out of Fort Bragg. The South Lincoln Street Community Garden is coming to the CV Star Center this year thanks to the support and work of the Fort Bragg community. If you're interested in a garden plot, please apply through the website, and that's www.gfcgardensfortbragg.org. That's gfcgardensfortbragg.org. They've begun to break ground and will be needing some volunteers to help um, building hoop houses and preparing garden beds, putting up a fence, and more in the coming weeks. Um, they'd love to have you join them, so please sign up for the Garden Fr Friendly Community Network if you're interested in staying up to date on what they're up to. Um, and you can also reach them by email at gfcgardensfortbrag at gmail.com. And one more announcement, um, the North Coast Soil Hub's 4th Annual Soil Health Symposium will be held virtually on March 11th and 12th from 8.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. This year's Soil Health Symposium will bring together growers, land and vineyard managers, scientists, agency representatives, and others to provide an overview of soil health in our region. Topics will include potential climate change impacts and solutions, cutting-edge practices, and the latest data from the field. Um, if you'd like to register and find out more, you can go to the Soil Hub website. This is so www.soilhub.org and look for the Soil Health Symposium. 
And up next, we've got Farm and Garden Show, uh, where, where we're going to be bringing you inside of this year's California Alliance for Family Farmers Small Farmer Conference. So for those of you who missed it or maybe who've been in the past, this year the, the Small Farmer Conference was uh, virtual, and so much of it can be now viewed online. Um, and we're going to be bringing you clips from some of the highlights over the last week. So... Um, if you'd like to watch more of these videos um, and attend the California Small Farm Conference online, you can go to the CAF website. That's www.caff.org. This is for the 33rd Annual California Small Farm Conference. So the first, the first clip that we're going to be showing you, um, it's called A Letter to the New Secretary of Agriculture. Last summer, the U.S. Department of Agriculture formally launched a new Office of Urban Agriculture, including a new grants program and local advisory bodies. In this video, you're going to be meeting some impressive urban farmers from across California, learn about the challenges and opportunities that they face, and hear some guidance they have for USDA and what kinds of additional investments they think the agency should be making. So this video debuted at the 2021 Small Farm Conference last week. And the video can be seen and revisited on YouTube. Secretary Dear Secretary Bill Sack, I'm Paul Towers, Executive Director, Community Alliance with Family Farmers. From San Diego to San Francisco, Fresno to Sacramento, farmers across the Golden State are growing a wide range of things in the heart of our cities. And the reality of our work has become even more important during the COVID-19 pandemic, where our local food system and our economy has been tested. So it should come as no surprise that urban agriculture is valuable, that there are those that might say that urban farming is not farming, they're wrong. Urban agriculture can increase access to healthy and nutritious foods, create important green spaces, reduce carbon emissions, create food and farm education for literacy, and provide opportunities to build community. That's why urban agriculture matters. While the numbers are important and statistics bear value, really it's important to hear from the farmers themselves. On behalf of urban farmers in California, we offer this digital letter. We offer this digital letter. My name is Kanok Yisrael, and I'm with the Yisrael Family Urban Farm, and we're located in South Oak Park, Sacramento, California. My name is Sasha Kano, and I'm the farmer and founder of FarmLot 59 in Long Beach, California. My name is uh, Abel Ruiz, and I'm a member farmer of the Crece Cooperative located in Santana, California. My name is Nelson Hawkins. I am the founder and lead grower of We Grow Urban Farm in West Sacramento. My name is Moretta Mo Brown, pronoun she, they. I'm currently living in Berkeley, California, also known as Aloni occupied territory. I am co-farming the Berkeley Basket CSA. Urban agriculture is important because it connects the people who grow the food with the people who actually consume the food. And as a result, it adds to greater resiliency in local communities. What are the root causes of why convenience stores and fast food is more accessible than nutrient-dense vegetables? I was seeing the inequalities in my own neighborhood, people not having access 
to fresh fruits and vegetables, how like the health aspects of how that affected my black community specifically. We started growing food just for ourselves, but now we supply people all around our neighborhood. Um, we do markets, local markets. Our goal is to generate community wealth by generating income through the production of mixed veggies based on, on pr principles of, of solidarity with each other and the earth. But also we, we run a compost program where we divert many of the waste like from, from neighbors that they bring their compost and, and we turn it into our fertilizer for, for our crop. Since COVID, we have been donating 100% of our produce to the local food bank and also preparing fresh meals, working with one of our chef partners. We serve 222 children every week. We can give young people employable skills transferable to many occupations, whether it is planning, strategizing, being punctual when they're ready to move on, you know, looking for other jobs later down the line. They have something to put on their resume and they can build from that. We have the Port of Long Beach here, which is also considered to be the diesel death zone in a lot of areas. And when people come to our farm, they're in a natural environment and can actually take a breath and be surrounded by nature in the otherwise very impacted city. Especially during times of hardship, during times of the pandemic and the racial uprisings, we have, at least on this block, people that folks can lean on when we're looking at total quality of life beyond nourishing the bodies, nourishing the spirit and the minds. I've been able to create these really important bonds with people in my community by being able to feed them um, in the heart of the city. Farmers have claimed their land and their spaces as places to grow food and community, and yet there are barriers to success. We believe USDA has an opportunity like none before to invest in urban farmers in our communities. The idea that if somebody like me from a community that's, you know, called a food desert by the USDA can starting from his backyard, create a successful urban farm enterprise, then that means that there are younger people who will then start to think about agriculture and farming as a future career. Not only do we provide food for our community on a free basis, but we also provide training and resources for people that want to start their own backyard farms or gardens. And it's not just farmers, it's marketing, it's distribution, and what it actually means to be farm to table and regenerative agriculture. But the labor cost is huge. So if there was support from the USDA for these training programs, so we would be able to pay a living wage in the city, it would be very appreciated. It's hard to classify ourselves when the perception of urban agriculture is that it's backyard gardening, especially Berkeley Basket is parceled out across different backyards. Folks can't visualize that urban agriculture is a, is a kind of a pillar in the grand scheme of agriculture for the state and for the country. The only encounter that we have had with agricultural agency person, that person basically came over to our farm and said, like, you know what, like, it's going to take more time to do that paperwork than the benefits that you will get from our programs. And so we were dismissed for, for being too small. That was like two years ago. And despite of that, like, we, we continue working in the land and, and developing this project to the point that right now we, we are scaling up which we could have done like with a little more support we could have done at a much faster pace needing a farm id is something that 
will help us gain access to funding that is provided by the USDA. And I just need to know that our operation would be valid enough <laughs> to get a farm ID to have access to that financing. The USDA and NRCS are our land partners with them. They're amazing. They want high tunnels everywhere. They want them in the urban environment. And I've been trying to get a second high tunnel. And it's so much work to get the USDA and the city to be able to talk to each other. It's been a year and a half and I'm still waiting for my city officials to sign off on it. So everything we've done, we've done on our own and with the support of the community and not with our local government. How the USDA could help urban growers is to secure land tenure for the long term as well as create grant opportunities to create workforce development for the youth. And also to be able to like create programming where it allows us to be able to team up with other farmers in the region where we can create uh, or have conversations around building regional infrastructure led by, by farmers themselves. I see the focus needing to be on empowering communities from within and having their voices valued and uplifted and heard in the decision-making process. You know, grants are fine, but they run out and they require a lot of paperwork and that sort of thing. But ongoing subsidies to be able to help us support our labor pool would be very beneficial to our operation. The challenges that we face uh, revolve around economics, our ability to make these things happen long-term, uh, as well as threats of developers coming in and having a different perspective on using this land. I know housing is very important and having some of those spaces reserved for growing food in the city would be brilliant. Some sort of incentive for people who were owners of vacant lots, if they, they would receive some sort of financial compensation if they were able to turn it into an operation that grew food, if that was something that could be incentivize across the board, um, not just by county or by city. So I think that starts with incentivizing people who own those vacant lots <laughs> or just large open spaces to say, hey, instead of developing it, why not have a farm there? Why not grow food there? From the history of black enslavement to sharecropping to California's alien land law of 1913 and Japanese internment during World War II, farmers of color were often driven from the land to cities. Thinking white flight, the large-scale movement of people of European descent from urban centers to suburbs in the 50s and 60s. That left many people of color in the cities often without the same access to, to wealth and services. The main thing, the challenge that is, is that there's this stigma around agriculture, especially for black and brown communities that relates to the trauma that either has to do with migrant farm working or slavery in general. And so what happens is when we go to the youth and uh, talk to them about this as being a viable career because, you know, uh, we are in the breadbasket of the United States here in the California Central Valley. And to talk to them about that, they can't even see themselves as an owner of a farm. They can only see themselves as being exploited by that system. And so as a result, they're not connected to uh, specific USDA programs that could actually help them become farmers. Even though agriculture runs in our veins, um, 
we face many challenges and not having land is one of them or, uh, or titles to land. We're dealing with a legacy that is kind of unique to communities of color of not having that equity or that collateral uh, wealth that could actually like boost us up into into a bigger scale operation to recognize that history is to uh, it would entail to create programming that addresses that that uh, historical harm so many young people especially that are in passion that have the drive to replace the aging farming population but the way that things are set up it's like everything's stacked against us the odds are not in our favor at all to build upon what was built before us land prices have continued to surge year after year in california they push land even more out of reach for many urban farmers and access to capital remains even more tenuous and the pandemic has highlighted the need for stable and healthy markets even more as has the need to invest in public education and apprenticeships we can see this clearly urban farming is a public service seeing urban agriculture as on a level playing field as for those who are in production farming to also know that empowering people to grow food in their backyard and you know in the heart of the city is just as valid and those folks of us who are doing it definitely need support what we're doing is small but it's it's a symbol of something bigger because if i can touch one person one young person and get them to say you know what, this, this farming thing is something that I want to do, then that could lead to another commercial farm, an urban farm. Um, it could lead to a whole enterprise. And at the end of the day, we need more farmers. I'm trying to get people who are 10, 11, 12, 16, 17 to say, hey, get into this now while they're young. So by the time they get to my age, they they're have 100 acres or so. There's something about a real working farm in the city where people can come. It's not a hobby. It's not something we do on the side. It's real work. And we're training people. We host workshops and classes. And the skills that we're teaching people will be able to serve them in their life journey. Anything that can be done to give us an advantage or give us a leg up, us being the next generation of farmers, uh, farmers of color, those that have been historically uh, left out, but making sure that the laws and the systems in place can protect us rather than go against us. So in closing, Secretary Bilsack, what we have is a, is a unique opportunity um, with COVID, with many of the things that have happened over the last year, where you have an opportunity to use the power of your position to be on the right side of history. Because right now we can go back far as far as you want to find out about some of the injustices, but it's going to take somebody in a position of power such as yourself to say, I acknowledge it and we're going to do something about it. And once that happens from the top, then that will start to trickle down to the bottom. But it has to start somewhere and you're the person that has to start it. USDA's recent investments in urban agriculture, these grants and new advisory bodies, sure, they're, they're exciting but we need more. We need land, we need capital, we need marketing support, paid apprenticeships, and more to help uplift our farms and our communities. I hope you can join us, Secretary Bill Sack. With kind regards from We Grow Urban Farm. Sincerely, Sasha Kano. With gratitude, this is Abel Ruiz. In solidarity, Kenoki Israel. Sincerely, Mo Brown. <laughs> Sincerely. 
Paul Towers, Executive Director at the Community Alliance of Family Fathers. All right. That was a letter to the new Secretary of Ag, and um, that can be found on the CAF YouTube page. That's Community Alliance for Family Farmers. And so from that video, we're going to move into... Um, we're going to move into a discussion about policy making. So this this session was was called the California Ag Policy Forum, and we'll be taking um, we'll be taking the next step from bringing awareness and making requests, which that last video did really beautifully. To what what happens next? How does it go to from from those farmers to Sacramento? Um, and policy making, like most of 2020, was a roller coaster. So fires, the pandemic, markets, and insurance coverage were just some of the issues California farmers and agricultural communities faced and policymakers grappled with. At the same time, Black Lives Matters matter and uh, sorry, at the same time, Black Lives Matters and increased discussions around social inequalities were a ray of hope. 2021 will no doubt face similar emergencies and persistent challenges. Here we'll be joining a panel of experts to hear results of the CAF annual farmer survey, discuss policy challenges and opportunities as we look to what's possible in 2021, what it might mean to you, and how you can get involved. Um, so the breakdown for power, um, again, this is from Alicia Garza. She was one of the three co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And she just published a book kind of reflecting on movement building from that experience. Um, so what is power? Alicia says it's the capacity to control circumstances, having legitimate access to systems sanctioned by the authority of the state, the ability to define reality and convince other people that it is their definition and in their best interests, ownership and control of the majority of resources of a state, and the capacity to make and enforce decisions based on this ownership and control. So a lot of this is going to be covered by our great panel today um, in different forms. Um, and up on the screen, you'll see Alicia's got a great breakdown of for herself of how she views the different iterations of power. So modeling is like the ability to build and demonstrate alternatives. Disruptive power is the ability to disrupt the status quo, challenge business as usual, and in so doing, dramatize what's wrong with current conditions. Narrative power, um, the ability to tell the story of what's happening in the world and why, and capture the imagination of growing numbers of people, change culture and mass consciousness. Market and consumer power is the ability to change and shape markets and consumption patterns at scale. And political power, the ability to move voters and therefore elect representatives in government that will be responsive to their electorate. I guess my, my role on the panel today, what I want to offer up um, is, uh, I guess I, I want to state it very clearly, the, um, some de I want to demystify a bit about how Sacramento works for those of you who are on, but I want to be really clear up front that 
uh, my experience of the Capitol over the last 15 years is as a privileged, you know, white woman. And that privilege is not earned. It is just privilege that's bestowed on me because of my my um, skin color, my life experience, etc. And so I, I just want to center that because um, it can be it can be challenging. And I and I like and I'll just I'll just share it very very plainly in the in the coalitions that we're in, etc. Uh, a goal and objective of myself as an advocate is how to figure out how to take the power and influence that we're building, right? Like my job is fundamentally about building power and influence for my clients to be able to translate what you all and what communities are asking for, that what they want to see and budget priorities from the state and policy priorities from the state. And how do we approach the legislature with all of its, um, its power dynamics? How do we, how do we, um, I want to be more, I'll say this, I want to be more of a vessel um, for demystifying and, and creating access to that process. Um, and also, I am super open and hope that that process changes as more and more and more voices are able to access it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how COVID has worked both for and against some of that, um, some of that access effort. But in any event, um, as I mentioned, I have been lobbying in Sacramento for about the last 15 years. And what I have um, um, learned more than anything is that power and influence, particularly for advocates who don't come to the table with a lot of political money or campaign endorsements or sort of inherent power, other than the power of their ideas and their beliefs and their values and the extent to which those are shared by lots and lots of other Californians, um, that so much comes down to creating and engaging in relationships with the elected officials and their staff. And so that's what I spend almost all of my time doing. Um, and I want to just share some of the thoughts that have occurred to me in preparation for this session about what really motivates folks who are elected to office and, and staff who are, who are, who are, who are supporting those members. How is it that they see us and our role in that process and how we, how do we work to build relationships within the culture, um, there? So I won't, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail because I think actually questions around this would be make for a more inspired kind of back and forth than a bunch of monologuing at people. I'm sure after several days of this conference, a bunch of folks talking at you um, is not um, not ideal. So I, I just want to share a few things up top. If you wanted to skip to the next slide, Jamie, that would be great. I might put some details here. I recently had the opportunity to um, develop a training for a statewide community-based, um, an alliance of community-based organizations. And for that, we got into the real nitty gritty. And I, and I wanted to share this slide from that with you all as well about, about some of the ways to engage members. That's, that is what the power of all of you on this line have. Like your, the voice, your voice and your experience in a district is so important to your elected officials, to your state legislators and your state senators. I'm here in Sacramento to kind of help, um, help, um, at a, at, a, at a level here where we're, we're trying to implement that policy, but when it comes to sort of building power and creating influence for moving those things through, it's those relationships on the ground that supplement and power the, the, the kind of work that I do. And your state legislators definitely want to know you. They want to hear your experience. And they want that to inform inform what their priorities are. So I try, as advocates are seeking to engage in policy, I assume if you're at this, you signed up to be at this forum today, that's a role you are either playing or are willing to play. 
I really try to understand where members are coming from. What did motivate them? And and we don't have to guess. I mean, we can look at their bios on their websites. We can get to know them a bit through their staff. But I think I think one of the things we as advocates often do is show up and just start talking at our legislators about what it is we're interested in. And we don't spend as much time trying to deeply understand where they're coming from. Why did they run for office? Who are the natural constituencies within their district um, that they care about? I think what I've been excited to learn while representing CAF is how many legislators, particularly those that are willing to author and champion bills that are important to small farmers, um, come from a farming background, whether through their family or their friends or their, their neighborhoods, um, and are deeply um, have a long history on these issues. And it's 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 important for us to understand. And the more we can know about them, the more explicitly I think we're able to influence and work with them as well. I. I think you should also know how much they want to hear from you. They're actually quite accessible, um, particularly during COVID. Many members are spending far more time in their districts than they work. They're not in Sacramento Monday through Thursday, which is their, their normal plan. But all the time on Fridays in particular, legislators are back in the district very focused on meeting with constituents. And it's relatively easy. Um, you don't need a lobbyist to pick up the phone, call the local cap, um, district office of your state legislator and ask, have them come out, even for a socially distant um, kind of tour of your farm and your operation. Really, you really have such an opportunity to have them see what you're what you're doing, what you're trying, what you need, how certain barriers, um, particularly and how COVID might be affecting you. There's nothing more impactful than them seeing with their own eyes, like what how the how things are affecting people in their district. So I really want to encourage you to build that relationship and, and repeat it often. I think they'll they will be very happy to engage with you. I think a lot of um, also bringing solid information it says here. So when someone asks you, legislators ask a question, I, I think a lot of advocates feel nervous about creating relationships with legislators because they're very worried they're going to be asked a question they don't know the answer to. Um, the good news is saying, I don't know, is perfectly respectful. And Justin and I say it all day long. Um, um, and in fact, please, please say, I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell you how many pickles I've been in by learning that folks set, uh, like guessed at an answer or spitballed something. Um, and then there's a lot of undo that has to happen at that point that can be challenging. And it comes from a good place. I, I know under pressure, folks often just want to have something to say, but I don't know is a perfectly reasonable answer. And what matters is following up. What matters is after that, I don't know, going and, and, and consulting resources or checking in with CAF or who, whoever it is that you think might be able to answer that question and then circling back. I sometimes actually strategically think saying I don't know is, is a smart idea because it guarantees follow-up. It guarantees that that relationship continues beyond that initial that initial engagement. And I also just truly believe in my heart that um, authenticity and genuine um, engagement with folks is the meaning behind all relationships, not just those we're seeking to engage, you know, for political or policy reasons. And so I don't know is a very honest answer <laughs> and reconnecting with people in real, in meaningful relationship. And um, it's only going to grow. I, I think your opportunity to be influential and um, I also, I'm not going to get too much in the weeds of some of these. You have them in front of you. Um, and some of these are a little, and looking at a couple of these, the, the idea of someone double-crossing you is probably a little bit more of our the gamesmanship that can occur for lobbyists here in Sacramento. Um, but just know that for those of us that are trying to take what matters to you all and turn it into meaningful investments from the state in our budget, 
or turn it into meaningful changes to state law that would help support your work, um, that your relationship building and, in, and build uh, relationships, particularly with district district staff and the members themselves and then communicating with us so that we know about it can go a long way to making us successful on your behalf. Can you go to the next slide, Jamie? Um, COVID, you may all wonder, um, COVID has affected your lives as farmers. It has deeply affected our lives as advocates. Uh, I'm sitting uh, at my home. Um, I'm about a year into sitting at my home and for to, trying to do a job that is deeply social, <laughs> deeply uh, uh, rooted in being able to have FaceTime with hundreds of people every day in order to pick up information convey information, pressure folks, see who's talking to who, etc. And so we've become very um, um, reliant on allies that we have within the Capitol staff and others to be helping us understand where processes are changing. I want to give a special shout out. I see that Mary Kames from the Assembly Speaker's Office is joining us today. She's a, she's a strong advocate for California's family farmers. Yes, holler. Thank you, Mary. And is so great about making sure that we're aware early and often about how the schedule might be changing, about how committee hearings are shifting. And if you're frustrated from further away about how challenging it is to keep up with things in Sacramento, I can assure you that during COVID proximity um, for all of us has been challenging. So there have been, there are far fewer hearings happening. Hearings are shorter, fewer bills are getting set. Um, and a lot less certainty. I have talked to all of my clients this year that, you know, the best we can get is an A for effort. Um, it's really hard to make any predictions about what can come through. I think there's been a lot of focus by the legislature early and rightfully so on, on getting response and relief resources. Um, I want to acknowledge that just in the last week, SB 87 was passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, which put $2.1 billion more dollars into the California Small Business Relief Program, grant program. Um, most small farmers in California are eligible. You, all your, your, your income in 2019 was below two and a half million dollars. You are eligible for that program. And the state has just put, as I mentioned, 2.1 billion more dollars in addition to the 575 million that had previously gone into it. So CAF has been a voice for trying to make that at the application process and some of the other issues that nonprofits and small businesses experienced um, during the pilot round. But we are here to actively try to help onboard you and make you successful in applying for up to $25,000 in grant funding there. But there will continue to be relief efforts. There is um, a 3.375, I think that's the right number, Jamie, um, uh, micro grants available for small farmers to get technical assistance to be able to pull down um, federal COVID relief funding that we're working, we're working closely with the legislature to try to move through sooner rather than later. So a lot of our energy is going towards trying to hear um, your, the, the challenges you're having during COVID and engage with the legislature. And they have prioritized moving these COVID relief programs sooner rather than later. Um, I will say that while engaging has been challenging, the Zoomingness, as we're doing here, has actually made it easier to get members meetings with members. Um, they have like, both more time to do that, and they're now more it's, more. it's easier to pull folks even from around the state into a single meeting. It's easier, in some ways, for folks from around the state to participate in committee hearings that are having public comment because you don't have to travel to Sacramento to make your one-minute pitch. Um, you can you can do it over the phone like the rest of us. It's fairly 
equalizing in that sense um and that we're all kind of in the on the same phone line um and then I just want to remind folks, we are now in the first year of a two-year session. Um, so while it can feel overwhelming that more than 2,000 bills were introduced and we remain in this pandemic-focused um, um, situation with, with uncertainty around our budget, um, the uncertainty around a recall of the governor, which, uh, which we could talk about later if there's curiosity about that, um, that, that we're going to, again, continue to push as hard as we can on our priorities this year, but some of these things may end up taking um, us through into next year um, because of the limitations um, on the legislature. And I, sh I guess I shouldn't presume that you know what I mean. There, Because there's social distance being practiced within the Capitol, every committee has to meet in a room that's large enough to allow the members of that committee to be at safe distance from one another and can only be of a duration where they're not sort of intensely indoor um, um, and so each hearing I and mean, there are only so many rooms that are accommodating that so normal under normal times there could be seven eight committee hearings going on throughout the capitol there can only be about three or four at a time between both the senate and the assembly now because of the space issues so that's dramatically limiting the number of those bills that are going to be able to move through the process because for example, the Assembly Natural Resources Committee is only going to have three four-hour hearings. They have close to 100 bills that have been referred to them. That will not, there is no way that, that will be feasible. So again, I think we're all rolling with it um, as best as we can under the circumstances and recognizing that the leaders of the state are, are, are electing where they, where they to prioritize reopening schools, getting relief um, to uh, businesses and nonprofits that need it, um, and figuring out how to get everyone in California vaccinated in an equitable um, and efficient way. These are taking up enormous bandwidth um, of our state government. And uh, hopefully with this new federal regime, we're getting so going to get so much more financial support and just um, policy alliance support. Um, but um, it's definitely it's definitely impacting everything that's going on here. All right. And that was Jennifer Fearing um, giving us a little inside look about uh, what it's like to be working in policy in Sacramento right now. And now from the same panel, we're going to be hearing about um, more of an on-the-ground example of how this happened um, with the California Farmer Equity Act. Um, those of us who worked on this bill, you know, we um, gathered together in 2017 and um, realizing a big gap in terms of policies and programs that accommodate the needs and look forward at uh, accessibility to programs and policies at the state level in agriculture by farmers of color. And um, there is this sort of ongoing question that we're seeing in implementation of the law of whether or not the Farmer Equity Act is essentially a civil rights law. The, the, the bill itself, or the law, I should say, now in uh, Section 512 of the California Food and Agriculture Code, identifies different uh, communities uh, along racial and ethnic lines within California agriculture as socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. And that phrase, of course, is not necessarily one that we at California Farmer Justice Collaborative came up with. That's an existing designation within federal language that identifies all non-white farmers under one 
kind of uh, band, right? So socially disadvantaged, uh, not a, not a very um, it's not a very nice thing to say about someone, of course, but it's a way that the federal government has figured out to identify growers who have faced discrimination in the past. And so, I mean, civil rights laws, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, generally they, they guarantee rights for people to receive equal treatment and also to prohibit discrimination in the future. Um, unfortunately, such programs related to agriculture, you know, like the um, like the Farmer Equity Act, as well as the USDA programs, um, such as the 2501 program, the uh, the socially disadvantaged farmer and rancher program, don't necessarily have a way to prohibit discrimination. I mean, the USDA partners with the Office of Civil Rights to oversee USDA's efforts to ensure that the USDA conducts its programs free of unlawful discrimination. And it also has a forward-looking uh, training, outreach, and technical assistance through the 2501 program. And within the um, California Farmer Equity Act, what we have is the legislative intent to partner with farmers of color to think about ways to address discrimination. And um, so under the law to date, uh, the Farmer Equity Act has created a uh, this is uh, what's what's articulated in, in law was the creation of a farmer equity executive position within CDFA, um, which has been staffed by our farm equity advisor, Thea Rittenhouse, in, since September of 2018. Um, CDFA has issued its farm equity report, which outlines um, a number of the different findings of the agency related to participation in its boards and commissions. Um, and showing that primarily it is uh, not surprisingly white participants in those boards and commissions, uh, and also that our ongoing issues that plague farmers of color in uh, in California are access to language access um, in our in our programs, land, um, and access to the means to farm, credit, and capital. So um, uh, that. Equity report is available for folks to look at both in English and Spanish, and it's host it's posted on the CDFA um, website on farm equity, which is has also been created in the past couple of years. We're also seeing for the first time agency communications and newsletters being translated into Spanish, um, second largest spoken uh, language in California. So. Um, that's a, something exciting and that we, we want to see more of that language access. And um, twenty and in in addition to this, there have been other advancements that have occurred outside of the law, but utilizing the language of that law. So what I mean by that is these are things that haven't that were not required by the Farmer Equity Act, but people in our community, in our group of advocates, within the California Farmer Justice Collaborative and outside of it have utilized the Farmer Equity Act to advance these uh, these priorities. So for instance, now 25% of program funds for technical assistance on climate smart ag grants are to be directed towards uh, socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. That includes the Healthy Soils Program and the SWEET Program. Um, also in the past week, 
we at the California Farmer Justice Collaborative were able to um, nominate CDFA's very first Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Farmer Advisory Committee to the CDFA, which will be meeting with Secretary Karen Ross on a monthly basis on its uh, on CDFA's implementation of its racial equity plan. So um, that committee, for instance, um, will be developing uh, feedback on the CDFA racial equity plan, identifying priority issues on, such as policy regulatory relief, barriers to participation in boards and commissions. And um, CDFA has said that by the end of year one, they hope to establish a process for ensuring farmers of color have a voice and an opportunity to provide guidance and direction on new programs and uh, regulations and policies that affect their farm businesses. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, uh, to go back to this uh, question of boards and commissions and just really talking about organizations within agriculture uh, at large in California, given, um, you know, we was glad to hear kind of the Sacramento landscape from Jennifer. And as we're getting into now at the stage of this panel today of just talking about equity in agriculture and um, how we realize that together. California has a remarkable amount of different organizations that have historically advocated for agriculture within um, within both the state agency, the California Department of Food and Agriculture, um, as well as within the, the legislature. And some of those are, you know, for instance, the California Grange ex has existed since the mid-1800s. The Farm Bureau was created in the early 1900s. Um, and the California Department of Food and Agriculture has been around only since 1918. And it's now 102 years later since the creation of the Department of Food and Agriculture, do we have finally a, um, a Farmer of Color Advisory Committee? Because really, you know, our civil rights advancements have really only been made since the 1960s here, at least uh, when we're talking about law in, in the United States. It was only under the Obama administration that black farmers were able to get any payment on the settlement from historic discrimination against the USDA, um, which uh, many black farmers call continue to call the USDA um, the site of kind of this ongoing, uh, the ongoing effects of Jim Crow that continue to keep black farmers out of land ownership and access. So, um, and today, CDFA's uh, boards and commissions, our, our California Department of Food and Agriculture boards and commissions, include all kinds of different areas of agriculture. We're talking animal and livestock, apiary, cannabis and hemp, commodity crops, citrus, dairy, eggs have their own board, nursery, farmers markets, feed, fertilizer, seed, organic production and marketing. Um, and of those 84, this is a, according to the Farm Equity Report that CDFA put out, 84% of those boards and commissions are populated by white people. Um, and the rest of the demographic are kind of split um, <clears throat> in a, you know, our tiny nominal representation by uh, different um, ethnicities. So in the implementation of the Farmer Equity Act, 
uh, I guess I, I say this to to note that when we pass the Farmer Equity Act, we're not only looking forward into developing more visibility and access for growers of color in these decision-making spaces, but we're also having to look regressively about how to address prior harms um, and addressing those prior harms usually will not be done only by the government. It has to be done through organizing, healing, movement building, um, pushing this giant apparatus uh, rather pulling this giant apparatus out of a shadow of discrimination and pushing it into a, into a place where we're actually doing collective multiracial, um, multilingual, multiethnic organizing. And um, so that leads me to kind of talk to you a little bit about CFJC structure, the California Farmer Justice Collaborative structure, and what it is that we do um, since, you know, we did work together to pass this historic bill and we're also uh, we're also farmers and there's a lot of things that this uh, our group does beyond beyond policy because policy to us really um, has never been the goal, you know, one of our um, one of our members, Abel, the other day said that, you know, it's not about the win of passing a policy. It's about the movement building around that policy. That's what that's what helps not only legitimate policymaking when it comes time to talk to legislators, but it makes it that when um, when talking to people of power, we're able to present our own power to show that this is this is the um, this is where this policy came from was from real need real people on the ground um and so our framework is really you know nothing about us without us is the cfjc uh, farmer steering committee uh, principle and where we're bipoc farmer led we have a steering council what uh, we call the farmer governance council which is made up of 10 farmers of color we currently have, um, and I should say that those growers are span um, many parts of the state, span many different scales. Some of them grow flowers, some grow grain, some of them have um, additional value added products and some are urban and some are rural and we are looking to grow that membership. We're very uh, openly looking to grow that membership. We're at a major flux point right now um, where we're looking to have more of that representation um, I see in the chat, is there publicly available info about the new CDFA BIPOC Advisory Committee? Um, because it was just barely nominated this past week, there's no public information yet, but we will be um, at least on social media making a post about who they are and um, we look forward to the Department of Food and Agriculture uh, probably in the next couple of weeks making um, more of a public announcement about that advisory committee. Um, so I wanted to also mention that within CFJC, we, we're also, you know, maintaining a, a, like, relationship with those committee members because they were nominated by, they were nominated by us. We're hoping to kind of assist in their interface with government, recognizing that for many of these growers, this is the very first time um, that they have ever interfaced with, uh, with government. And I, remember like on the day before our first meeting 
um, with the Farm Equity Advisor hearing from the youngest member of the Farmer, this advisory committee, who's a 20-year-old um, mixed orchard grower in Fowler, um, Punjabi descent, and she she was she is like a Gen Xer who was like couldn't believe that this was the first time that this sort of committee was being inaugurated into the department. And then on the very other side of the age spectrum was another grower also from Fresno um, <laughs> who was like so surprised that such a thing would even happen at this at this stage, that there's been so many years of of ignorance by the department that why would they suddenly have such a such a committee? So there's just a vast um, cognitive almost, you know, cognitive divide in the the perception of justice of being able to accept that this is where we are um as, as that the state agency is is at this point so um we are certainly you know as cfjc making a commitment to assist those growers through that process our the cfjc members include um and i also see that evan put our website into the chat. It's a horribly out of date website, but we'll be hopefully putting new um, updating with some of our bias soon. Okay. The rest of that policy forum, the California Ag Policy Forum can be found on CAF's YouTube page. That's C-A-F-F-F-L-I-X, CAFflix. And, um, there are so many more of these workshops and uh, videos that were made for the conference. And if you're interested in any of them, I encourage you to go check them out on the YouTube page for CAF. Um, you know, there's more hands-on topics, too, if you're interested in on-farm composting or small farm tools, um, grazing in vineyards, I saw. And there's just so many that you can watch um, for free on YouTube and uh, if you missed any of the California Small Farm Conference, that's how you can check them out. And so for the last part of our show, um, I'm going to be bringing it in to our local county agricultural news. Um, and and I'm going to be reading a piece that was written, actually it was written on the Potter Valley Public Group on Facebook um, about a control burn that happened in Potter Valley this weekend, or last week, I'm sorry. Um and so this was written by Kyle Farmer, um, and again, it's on the Potter Valley Facebook page. Dear neighbors, the prescribed fire we lit yesterday was surrounded not by one, not by two, not by three, but by seven previous prescribed fires. It burned a little over 40 acres and extinguished itself when it reached those previous fires, along with the 130-foot fire break at which the flames were directed. There was some wind, yes, a wind coming very consistently from the west, averaging about eight, eight miles per hour, with short gusts to 12. The temperature was in the high 50s to low 60s, and the relative humidity was in the 40s. In the summer, we fight fire not only with much greater wind speeds, but with temperatures above 100 and humidity in the teens. Here is what you need to understand about wind and prescribed fire. A wind coming from the north could have carried the fire towards my neighbors to the south. A wind coming directly from the south would have resulted in an even more intense fire, but still would have been safe. But an east wind, an east wind like the night of October 8th, 2017, that is the one that scares me. That is the one I burn to keep, is that, 
that that is the one I burned to keep my neighbors safe from. A wind coming from the east would carry fire up that draw and into the lives of dozens of people. And that is why we burned in February with a west wind. Scientists are convening around the reality that prescribed fire is the only viable path out of our current fire situation. We're all going to be seeing a lot more burns like these to the point that it will soon become normal to see some smoke in the hills in the winter. We will all learn enough about fire not to be scared. An excellent article published in ProPublica last year phrased it this way. Academics believe that four point, between 4.4 million and 11.8 million acres burned each year in prehistoric California. Between 1982 and 1998, California's agency land managers burned on average about 30,000 acres a year. Between 1999 and 2017, that number dropped to an annual 13,000 acres. Gavin Newsom has pledged to increase treatment to 1 million acres per year. Get ready, folks. As a volunteer firefighter, I drive towards the fires when they come each summer. I know how different those fires are from the ones we lit yesterday. I have also fought wildfires in places that burned within what fire scientists call a natural fire return interval. They burn slower and less intensely, even in the heat of summer. Yesterday, we lit two different types of fires with two different prescriptions. One is the chaparral burn that burned hot and big. Chaparral is a fire-promoting ecosystem. Some of the plants actually emit flammable gases to grow the fire bigger and draw it toward themselves. Over time, as the chemise, for example, grows taller, the lowest branches or the entire plants die. This is the kind of fuel that ignites. In the summer, from an ember cast from an, a mile away, this is the kind of fuel that, in summer, kills people. Prescribed fire will not burn chaparral less intensely, but it will do it in much smaller patches. For decades in the Mendocino National Forest, there was an effort called the Grindstone Project to puzzle piece the prescribed burn footprints into what fire scientists call a mosaic of 50-acre pieces, a little bigger than the one I did yesterday. Where are we now? We abandoned the effort 30 years ago, and in the last couple of years, the entire million-acre forest burned in two units. We will never arrive at a place where chaparral doesn't burn. We can, in the next generation, arrive at a place where it burns in small pieces. Yes, a little smoke, but let's not forget this past summer. Without action, this past summer will seem like an air quality paradise. California would become, could become uninhabitable. The second type of fire was an understory burn, my favorite. In an understory burn, you're burning, often, in my case, on a north slope. The fire is carrying slowly through the fescue grass clumps and leaf litter, occasionally torching up a Douglas fir sapling, hopefully girdling a thicket of finger-thick madrones. A second person will follow behind the lighter with some sort of firefighting tool, my favorite being a leaf blower, and blowing or scraping the leaves away from some of the larger trees that, would, that have wounds at their base that would allow for fire to kill them. The vibrancy that flourishes in these places in the flowing and following years is indescribable. So beautiful that you will never again walk through a fire-adapted landscape from which the fire has been withheld and not feel that place's pain. Now here's the funny thing. It is those light understory burns that produce the most smoke. Why? Because the fire doesn't produce enough heat to lift the smoke higher into the air. The smoke can settle and wet logs can smolder instead of exploding in flames like they would in summer. And with that, um, we're going to have to end our... And now, ladies and gentlemen, to continue our show at the Ash Grove this evening, we present a very fine...
blues singer and guitar player, Booker White. Tune into the No Show this Monday night at 8 p.m. for a tribute to Ed Pearl, whose Ashgrove nightclub in Los Angeles was one of the first venues in the city to feature blues, zydeco, bluegrass, folk, and gospel from across America. He is the man that makes it possible to bring this good old folk music to you. And I think he deserves a lot of credit because he loves it from the bottom of his cotton-picking heart. It's none other than Mr. Pearl. Let's give him a hand. Tune into the No Show this Monday night at 8 p.m. for a tribute to Ed Pearl, 